gentlemen, welcome to America's Auto Enthusiast Program. This is Auto World. And now, here's your host, Bob Long. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for being here for another hour of Auto World. And in this hour, we're going to be joined by the man who joins us every week at this very same time. It's uh, the guy who has all the knowledge there is, more than 25 years worth of lubrication experience, a certified lubrication specialist, a uh, former member of the uh, U.S. Navy with Lots of experience in nuclear submarine propulsion and much, much more. He's also one of the largest distributors of AMSOIL in the entire U.S. of A., all across the U.S.A. and Canada. So we are going to have our good friend on Dan Watson. He's standing by. And again, I'll remind you, you can call in anytime throughout the hour. At 855-660-4261, 855-660-4261, or via the email, bob at autoworldradio.com, or bob at uh, boblongradio.com. I'll give you two for me, and I'll give you one for Dan. Dan Watson at thelubepage.com. Dan Watson at thelubepage.com. And we welcome Dan Watson back to the program. Dan, how are you doing? Doing good this evening. Bob, you doing fine yourself? Yep, doing fine. Thanks very much for asking. And you've got an interesting question here right off the bat. Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of <laughs> shifting a little and asking you some questions because I've, I've kind of discovered that there's this huge wealth of, as you said, automobile uh, geek knowledge, but I call it just thorough understanding of the entire industry and it's kind of fun to uh, pick your brain with a question now and then so I wanted to ask you this and, and then I'll I'll list mine but you know in your opinion uh, what are the three most significant innovations in automobile technology since the model a Ford okay Kind of a big rambling question, and I'm sure there's more than three things to look at, but just something to think about for a minute because I I know you keep up with it, but it is amazing how much over this, call it 100 years of automobile history, how far this industry's come with the products it produces now compared to what it produced in, say, 1905. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. We've so I'm going to so lay my far. three on you, and then we'll <laughs> see what the uh, the man with all the, the automobile knowledge has to say. For me, I would say the three greatest innovations that I think of are, one, the automatic transmission. Okay? Sure. And two, I would have to say the uh, fuel injection fuel injection management system, okay? In other words, uh, we went from the carbureted systems to the fuel injection systems. And then third, which is a little odd for me because I don't really think that much of them, but I'd have to say third to me would be the hybrid technology that is the recent significant mm-hmm. innovation. Now, I'll, I'll give you it out on this, Bob, if you want to think about it. You can think about it until and promise to answer it in whichever segment you choose, or if you kind of got it aligned in your mind, you can just run it right out at it. All right. Well, why don't I try just running what's on the top of my mind? When you 
think of automotive innovations in the last 100 plus years or so, I think, uh, Dan, you've nailed some really significant ones. But uh, if you go back to, to early technology, I mean, uh, the electric starter certainly was uh, one of the big innovations of its day. As you said, the automatic transmission, uh, headlights, uh other things that I think of more recently about uh, all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive that certainly is one of the uh, one of the big innovations we see more and more vehicles these days being produced with all-wheel drive including a lot of cars and crossovers and and SUVs I'd have to put that on the list I'd have to put the seatbelt which uh, really got its start by uh, the uh, in the late 50s by Volvo, the uh, the Swedish car company, which today is still a Swedish car company, but is actually owned by a Chinese firm, but they still have all their Swedish engineers in place. And uh, let's see, what else? I would say maybe anti-lock brake disc technology, which uh, today we take for granted to be standard equipment on every car, but Back years ago, it was a high-priced option on just a handful of cars, and and we've seen that technology go down to the level where you won't find a car that doesn't have it. So there's three right off the top of my head, Dan. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the starter, right, the electric starter? Yep. <laughs> now, I know people are going to say he, he can't be that old, but <laughs> when I was a boy and we owned a, a small orange grove here in uh, south-central Florida, down towards LaBelle, Florida, uh, we had new orange grove planted, new trees, and we had a water truck. And it was an old cut-down Model A frame with a water tank on the back, and uh, you drive down the rows and water these new sets of orange trees, and they were just small trees. And uh, you had to hand-crank start it. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm telling you, that thing scared the devil out of me every time because I was just about 10, 12 years old. My brother was older, and he was driving, and I'd be riding along. And the uh, <laughs> that thing when you would go to turn it over and start it, if it kicked back on you, <laughs> it could throw me. I wasn't very big. If it kicked back on me, it could literally lift me up and throw me back across the front. So the electric starter, that's a high level of priority as far as I'm concerned. That thing scared me every time I tried to start it by hand. What you know, a great and, uh, story. So I, I'm aware of that, and you're absolutely, you nailed it, because I can't imagine, if you didn't have electric starters, there'd be very few women driving cars. That's true. Because that thing uh, is dangerous enough, and the bigger the engine, that was just a little four-cylinder Model A engine. Can you imagine trying to use a hand crank to start a, a six-liter V8? <laughs> yes. You'd need exactly. uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger to have to come over and help you get her started, you know. So. <laughs> That's right. But, yeah, these innovations have been tremendous. And I, I looked at the automatic transmission because today, now when I was a, a boy, automatic transmission was still an option. You could sure. get a manual transmission on almost anything that you bought. But I don't think you can even get a manual transmission in 90% of the cars that are produced today. No, you're absolutely right, um, including, you know, a lot of very expensive sports cars, which used to be synonymous with stick shifts. For example, Ferrari no longer sells any vehicle here or any place else in the world without a automated manual gearbox. It's actually a, 
uh, a manual gearbox that has an automatic clutch is probably oh, yeah. the best way yeah. to destru- describe it. But uh, it's true, the, the take rate on even these high-end vehicles that are real sporting models, Porsche, for example, their king-of-the-road car for for most of the last 50 years or so has been the 911 Turbo, and that used to be something that only was available with the manual gearbox. That's the only way you could get it, and now uh, you can't get it any other way except by getting it with with what they have got, uh, their very fancy automated manual called the PDK transmission. Um, a couple of different folks have, have tried to... Uh, Save the third pedal car and driver magazine has had a campaign for that for the last 10 years or so quietly raising awareness of the fact that uh, people are not buying the manuals of the few vehicles that are out there and uh, they better do so if they want to see it around and I'll give kudos to the Haggerty insurance folks who do some workshops across the country where they get teenagers out and teach them how to drive a manual transmission something that is unheard of but uh, something that hopefully will get automakers thinking about maybe producing a few more manuals but great topic great question Dan we'll be right back Broadcasting from the middle of Corvette Boulevard and Stingray Avenue this is Auto World with your host Bob Long Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for being here. We've got Dan Watson, as we do each and every week at this very same time. He is the uh, CEO of thelubepage.com. Dan at thelubepage. Dan Watson at thelubepage.com is his email address, and we're anxious to, to get those questions sent over to him and also sent to me at bob at autoworldradio.com, or you can call up, say hello to Mackenzie, who's our board operator in Master Control at our studio in just outside of Minnesota, and you can, uh, just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, I should say, uh, telephone-wise, you can call in at 855-660-4261. And, Dan, that was a really great way to start the hour. We could definitely revisit that topic again, I think, in the not-too-distant future, because uh, oh, yeah. there have been There's so many. so much interesting stuff to talk about in that category of innovations and, and their impact and uh, how the, you know, like you were talking about the, the manual transmissions. Listen, I taught both of my daughters how to drive in a Nissan pickup with a manual five-speed transmission. Mm-hmm. And the reason was, as I said, that if you don't learn this now, somewhere down the road, the only thing you'll have available to you for some reason is a manual shift car because you got to get somewhere or something, and you'll be at a loss. You'll have no ability to do it. So if you're going to drive, you need to know how to do manual transmission. So both girls, their husbands, neither one knew how to drive a stick shift. Wow. <laughs> I mean, how does the You're talking about changing environment in automobiles. Can you imagine that, Bob? We would have said when we were young, maybe, hey, watch it. If you let your girlfriend drive your stick shift, she's going to grind the gears, right? <laughs> exactly. And now we've come forward 50 years, and all of a sudden we got uh, daughters with husbands that have never driven the stick shift. <laughs> 
I know that is so true. And another thing that they say today, one way to guarantee not having your car stolen is to drive a stick shift because most <laughs> thieves don't know how to drive a stick shift either. I didn't think about that. That's, that's a good ace in the hole, Bob. That's a good comment. <laughs> Well, okay, we will. Maybe next week uh, we'll talk about uh, that topic again, just as we can have some more fun with it. Absolutely. Meanwhile, we've got a question here from, uh, let's see, a question out of Texas to uh, start uh, this hour off uh, question-wise. And um, the question is, it's from Phil, uh, you seem to favor running synthetic oil for longer drain intervals. If any petroleum meets the API's specs, why can't you just change it every 3,000 miles and not pay the higher price for synthetic oil? That's a question from Phil in Texas. And Dan, hey, and I'd say to Phil, go for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no requirement that you got to go to synthetic oil. Now, here's the thing, though, Phil. And I say this because every synthetic oil doesn't allow you to go for longer drain intervals, but if you were going to run Ansel Signature Series oil and you were a high mileage guy, meaning you're a salesman or something, you're putting some miles on that car, or you're a teenager doing miles with the car, that would probably just as many. But anyway, and you're going to change that oil over 3,000 miles. Let's see. Well, if you bought the premium synthetic from AMSOIL, and you ran it for 20, well, we'll use 24,000 miles because it's easy to divide that by three, right? Yeah. So you would have changed your oil eight times, eight times in the time that wow. you would change it one time with the synthetic. Now, some people, I had a guy one time told me that he, it gave him great satisfaction to change oil. He loved changing oil. Well, if that's you and you're a do-it-yourselfer, and you just love the idea of changing oil. I always like to change my own oil in the past because it made me feel like I was doing the right thing for the car, but I don't think I could get into it for eight times compared to one. That would be just like maybe I was obsessive or something with changing oil. So the point here is, is all kidding aside, Phil, you can change your oil every 3,000 miles. But I submit to you that 90% of people will never do that, even if they claim that they're not going to buy the better oil to go the longer drain intervals. This National Lubrication Magazine in the survey shows that people go an average of 4,400 miles on petroleum oil that they said they were going to change at 3,000. The sticker on the window tells them to change it at 3,000, and they average 4,400 miles. They're overranging this product and may and may, I'm not saying are, but may be sometimes causing some excessive wear from their oil having lost its primary lubricating ability. So this is not rocket science. This is just if you're going to stick religiously with 3,000 miles and you buy a quality petroleum oil, I think you'll do fine. But that's up to you if you want to change that many times. Now, the other part about it is, though, quite frankly, uh, you can get into extreme conditions that petroleum oil just can't deal with. You can get in very hot summer conditions, West Texas, Arizona, uh, South Florida, uh, southern southern uh, Mississippi, you know, something like this, you can get in a location where your car starts to overheat. Well, if you've got a high-grade synthetic, a real true synthetic, it could care less. You're not going to get it hot enough to ever cause a loss of lubrication. But with some of these cheaper petroleum oils, they're just not able to take that higher temperature, so you don't have any protection 
there you're going to have some probably excessive wear during that overheating period. Same thing on the cold weather side. You can do the best you can with a quality petroleum, say it's a 5W20. Well, the truth is, even though it can pass that 5W rating, it doesn't respond at all like a pure synthetic in cold weather. So it may be that you really have some trouble getting good lubrication while your engine's warming up if you're using a, a petroleum oil in northern Minnesota. Okay, so there are reasons where you want to use the better protection, period. You want better protection. It's like in the winter, Bob, when a person finally decides they live in northern Minnesota and they better put on the snow tires, okay? No longer good to be driving around with the regular tires. Would the, would the regular tires get the job done? Yeah, but they won't get the job done too well when you get enough snow and ice. You'll be sliding all over the place and find yourself getting a tow truck to get you out of the ditch. So we have to anticipate sometimes the severe conditions and protect for that, and then we'll naturally be covered for the easy uh, conditions. So, but again, if you change your oil every 3,000 miles with a with a good quality petroleum, I think you can drive your car for three, 400,000 miles. Uh, you know, now I say a good petroleum because, folks, uh, it's just another topic I don't even want to get into. There's so much bad stuff out there, so much inferior oil. It's just, you know, I am not happy with the status of the lubrication industry right now and some of the stuff that's out there being sold. So just be careful and, and do your, what we call due diligence. Check it out. Anything you buy, go on the Internet, find out all the information you can on it before you're satisfied that that product is suitable for your car. Excellent words of advice. When we come back on the other side, Tom in Atlanta has got a question. We also have Ed in Florida. And we have room for you at 855-660-4261. Or Bob at AutoWorldRadio.com. Dan Watson at TheLubePage.com. Get your questions in. Dan Watson at TheLubePage.com. Bob at AutoWorldRadio.com. That's the name of the show. This is AutoWorld. I'm Bob, along with Dan. Don't go away. And now, back to the show with the highest octane, AutoWorld, and your host, Bob Long. Dan Watson is with us from TheLubePage.com, which means we've got one of the very best experts in all the world with us when it comes to lubrication, when it comes to talking about uh, all kinds of uh, topics uh, on a whole wide variety of, of uh, different entities. If you want to talk about uh, outboard motors, if you want to talk about professional uh, gardening equipment, farm equipment, if you want to talk about snowmobile uh, lubrication, we're up for anything. So give us a call or shoot us an email. Dan, we got a question from uh, Tom in Atlanta where he lives in the, that neck of the woods and say, he says it gets really hot in the summer. My car calls for using a zero W20 engine oil. Should I use a heavier oil in the heat? A good question. And and something to be concerned about. Yeah, and I think the nickname uh, Hotlanta. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's very appropriate, especially yeah. in July and August. I mean, it gets hot. So here's the thing. Uh, the Zero W20, if you buy a true 
synthetic. And, folks, I'm using that term true because, again, that's another topic we've talked about on this show before about some of the bad imposters out there. But let's say, for example, if you use Amsoil Signature Series 0W20, you don't have to worry about the hot temperature. Because let me explain these numbers again. It's always important to understand that, that num- those numbers that we're talking about, 0W20. The first number, the 0W, just consider the W stands for winter. It's a good way to look at it. So that oil has a certain rating for winter use, meaning with a 0W, it will pump very fast in cold weather. It moves very quickly. It's not restricted uh, by cold weather. Now, the 20 on the other end is the viscosity rating that's measured at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. We call that the operational viscosity. Now, a 0W20 and a 5W20 and a straight 20 would all have the same operational viscosity number. It's only the winter rating that we're changing there, 0W, 5W, or no winter rating, straight SAE20. Now, the cars that are designed today that have 20-weight oil for their use, they should be protected well by that 20-weight oil, but I will make this exception. I do not think it's appropriate to try to run a 5W20 in a Ford V10 uh, engine that is designed and goes into commercial vehicles and big RVs. I just think that that's asking for trouble. And those engines would do fine on a 30-weight oil. Okay, Most any of these 20-weight rated engines would do fine on a 30-weight oil. But I don't advise you to go against your manufacturer's recommendations unless you're moving into extreme operating conditions. But I do advise you, if you're going to use a 20-weight oil, do some research. Check it out. Get a high-quality synthetic 0W20. If you get a poor synthetic or what I call an imposter synthetic or a blend, you are asking for trouble in the 0W20 rating. You will not, your car won't stop on the side of the road, but you will have a continued excessive wear going on that will eventually cause your ring seat to get bad and you'll start to have blow-by and lose compression in the engine. So you have to think long-term when it comes to this. So again, the if you use Amsoil synthetics for 0W20, you're going to be fine. But even in that circumstance, if I had a big V10 or a V8 and I had it in a heavy operating condition, my opinion is you would be better off with a 5W30 in that severe operating condition. I think that pretty much sums it up, Bob. I think that's an excellent answer, and we thank the gentleman for writing us. We've also got Ed in Florida with a question, and he wants uh, you to explain two-cycle mixing ratios. Why are they different for so many different applications? (laughs) Hey, Ed, you you don't feel bad. You, You must be, in my time of doing this, I've had this question, what are those mixing ratios really mean at least two or three hundred times. 
So it's always good to ask the question because you're asking something that probably if there's uh, out my listening audience, there's at least another hundred people to go, yeah, what do those things mean? So mm-hmm. <laughs> don't be embarrassed to ask the question. Here's the thing. If you can think of it in this simple aspect, it's 100 to 1, 50 to 1. These are the numbers we're talking about, 40 to 1, 80 to 1. Well, what does that really mean? And what it means is the fuel to the amount of oil. So, for example, a 100 to 1 would mean if I had 100 gallons of fuel, I would have one gallon of lubricating oil mixed into that 100 gallons. And that would be a 100 to 1 mix ratio. Now, if I had 50 to 1, it would say that if I had 50 gallons of gasoline, I would have one gallon of oil. That would be a 50 to 1 ratio. Okay, and then if I go on down to a 40 to 1, I'd have 40 gallons of gasoline and one gallon of oil. Now, you can move that ratio into other things than gallons, okay? If I have it in quarts, I have 100 to 1, well, I would have a mixture, if it was in quarts and it was 100 to 1, I would have 100 quarts of gasoline to one quart of oil. As you know, that'd be about 25 gallons of gasoline to uh, one quart of oil, okay? Because 100 quarts, four gallons in a quart, would be about 25 gallons, okay? So that's how you do those ratios. Now, why are there so many different ratios? And it's because the manufacturer is trying to find a mix ratio that will protect the moving parts of that two-stroke engine, because this is for two-stroke applications. In a two-stroke application, remember, we don't have an oiling system like in a, in a four-stroke car or something where you have a filter and you have an oil pump and all that. We don't have any of that. So we mix oil in the gas so that when the gasoline is brought into the cylinder, it brings oil with it, and that oil is slung into the cylinder and coats everything to protect and prevent those rings and, and moving parts from having wear. It's actually a very difficult lubricating regime because in the four-stroke world, when we get too much fuel contamination in the crankcase, we condemn the oil and drain it out. Here I have a case where I'm going to mix my oil into gasoline. Which is, how could I do that? How, how would that work? Well, it's different designed oil that is designed to be mixed into the gasoline. Now, some of the later and greater just incredible two-stroke engines being made by people like Evinrude E-Tech and uh, Mercury Optimax and stuff, they no longer even mix the oil into the gasoline. The oil is brought in with the air instead of the gasoline, and the gasoline is injected in right at the last second, but the oil comes in with the air. So now all of a sudden you've got to have a type of oil that can distribute itself well in moving air without the aid of gasoline lowering its its viscosity and mixing it, it's got to do it by itself. So that's a whole different thing, which means that the old idea of using these very, very heavy, heavy loaded-up petroleum oils to protect these engines is just completely uh, restricted. You can't do it. It's forbidden. Uh, so that's a whole different story in two strokes. And hopefully that explains the mixed ratio. 
Great answer, no doubt about it. When we come back on the other side, we'll continue to take your emails and telephone calls. This is Auto World. Hey, it's Billy F. Gibbons from ZZ Top, and you're listening right here to Auto World. Dan Watson, CEO of the LewPage.com, joins us live here on the broadcast, and we've still got a bunch of questions here. We're going to see if we can get through, including one out of KROE land in Wyoming. That's the next one up. We'll get to that, but want to make sure that everybody has got Dan's personal number because you could you got to visit the Lou page. There's no question about that, and you can check out all the videos that he's done on YouTube. But Dan is such a great resource of information; has no problem with a personal call from you. So, Dan, why don't you give out your telephone number for everybody? It's eight hundred three seven zero two nine eight six. Eight hundred three seven zero two nine eight six, and just give Dan, uh, you know, a day or so. He gets a lot of calls in, in an average day, but I can guarantee you one thing: Dan will call you back, which I can't say is true for most experts. Like Dan, never make themselves available at the level in which Dan does. So. Hats off to Dan for all the great work that he does. Our next question is from Sheridan, Wyoming. I have seen Amsoil at the Sturgis uh, rally and didn't give it much thought. One of my buddies from Arizona swears that Amsoil makes the best bike run cooler in the Arizona heat. Uh, is Is it just him imagining or is this true? Well, um, it's true, and it's not uh, a some kind of unexplained mystery that this takes place. When you look for how you're going to lubricate something and whether it's going to cool it or not, this is what we call an oil-air-cooled motor. In other words, there's no radiator, there's no water jacket. So this engine has to dissipate the heat, from that's picked up in the oil and through fins on the the heads of the of the engine. It's a V twin, and it has. Uh, sometimes they'll even put an oil cooler, a separate oil cooler on the engine. But that's all because the oil is collecting the heat, okay? And that oil removes that heat as it uh, lubricates and flows down. Uh, through the passages and then goes to the oil sump and then back up. So it's taking out the heat, and then the heat gets taken out of the oil by the air stream going over the oil cooler and the places where the oil can be cooled in portions of the engine. So why would synthetic oil do better here? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is when you're in an air-cooled situation, you're going to run higher oil temperatures. Now, I want the oil to stay liquid, number one, in all cases, because if the oil becomes somewhat of a mixture of vapor and oil in some places because it's so hot, then it doesn't 
transfer its heat out as fast, meaning that oil that is not 100% liquid when it flows through a hot area will not remove as much heat as oil that is 100% liquid. Liquid removes heat faster than vapor, okay? So that's the first thing. You don't want your oil having hot spots where it goes to vapor instead of maintaining its liquid form. The second part is a little bit down in the weeds, so let me explain it quickly the best I can. Anything that you deal with in the heat transfer world has a specific coefficient of heat transfer, okay? What that means is how well does that product transfer heat? We all know that if I were to take a piece of wood and it got really hot and it's burning on one end, it's burning on one end. I can pick up the other end because it doesn't transfer the heat up the wood. It may be warm, but it would certainly be hot. Now imagine if I have a piece of steel and I lay one end of it in the fire and you try to pick that other end up with your bare hand. It's going to burn you. What that means is that that steel has a high coefficient of heat transfer. It moves heat through it quickly, whereas the wood does not. Well, how is that possible? What makes that happen? And why does that happen? It's, it's really easy to understand. When you understand that temperature is a measure of the average kinetic energy of the molecules in the substance that mm-hmm. you're dealing with. Oh, it sounds real complicated, right? Yeah. Imagine heat causes those molecules to vibrate really hard. That's kinetic energy. They vibrate against each other. So if they're close packed, dense, and they're close to each other, that vibration transfers really easily. But if they're widely spaced, like in air or foam or a piece of wood, they don't have close aboard contact, so they can't vibrate into each other and transfer the heat. Synthetic oil, because if it's the right synthetic oil, it's made with a uniform molecular structure, meaning imagine in your mind millions of tiny little golf balls. Okay, well, if I got these golf balls side by side, if I hit one on the left side, it will cause each one in between all the way to the right side to feel the same impact going across. Well, consider the one side is where the heat is, so it makes the golf ball on that side get excited and it rattles real hard. Well, it transfers it right across that layer of golf balls to the other side. That's called convection heat transfer. I'm sorry. It's not convection, it's conductive heat transfer. So I'm doing good. I'm moving this stuff out quickly. Now, in petroleum oil, because the molecules are all such different sizes, they don't have that nice little uniform molecular structure, and so they won't transfer heat because they're not touching each other and vibrating quickly to move the heat out. you got big ones and small ones and so forth, so it's kind of a less efficient heat transfer across that oil field. Okay. Now, we've played Mr. Science about all I think that the people can stand, <laughs> but, but that's the truth. I mean, this stuff is not that hard to understand. Uh, heat transfer is, is moving energy from one molecule to the next. If I have close-packed molecules, it moves real easy, especially if they're the same size. Okay, that's efficient transfer. If they're not close-packed and they're big and small, different ones, it will not transfer as readily across that barrier. That's why we have stuff called insulation, where it doesn't transfer at all, okay? And so that's kind of like, you know, lube school we're doing here. But to answer the question, yes, your bike will run cooler. Some people report with Amsoil 30 degrees cooler. 
Wow. Uh, you know, in hot conditions. So where a bike a might be trying number. to get up to 270 degrees, you might hold it down to 240, 220. Uh, it really makes a difference because when those bikes get too hot, Bob, they start losing compression. They won't hold sure. their compression. They'll shut off. So let's see if we can get another one in. All right, we got Steve in California. He thought he heard someone say zero W sixteen oil is required for new Hondas. Is this true? Yes, I want to. I was hoping to get to, to this question because zero W sixteen has been used in Japan. It's coming in the United States. Unfortunately, like I, I've been just beating the dead horse about this, the quality of some of the oils we're making over here are not equal to the same quality standards they're making them in Japan. This 0W16, some of these cars is having trouble, folks. They're having some unexpected wear and uh, different problems that are going back to the to the Honda dealerships and they're trying to deal with it. Here's what I would suggest to you. Think about running a 0W20 because if you run a 0W20, at least in the interim, until we can be sure that all the kinks are worked out with having high-quality 0W16. Ansel makes a 0W16. You could run that one, but... In general, if you can't get to the Amsoil 0W16, you might find a mobile 0W16. That might be a good good one to use, but be careful of using anything else because that oil has to be of the highest quality to provide protection. If you go up to a 0W20, you think you're going to get in trouble with Honda? Not really, okay, because those same engines were running 0W20 before. So if you use the 0W20 at least in the interim over the next year or so, you'll probably avoid some problems with some inferior 0W16 that's trying to come into the marketplace. And it'll settle out and we'll know who's got good 0W16 and who doesn't because it's not going to go away. But in the interim, I think you might save yourself some grief if you just buy a high-quality 0W20 synthetic and just go about your business. And Amsoil has a product for that, then. We have a 0W16 in our OE line. I kind of prefer the 0W20 Signature Series as my choice. But the 0W16 made by Amsoil will give you protection or they would not make it. Okay. Well, it's definitely a good question. And uh, lots of people should take your advice, Dan, and, and go for a little bit of a, a buffer and and move up to a zero w20 oil if there's problems lurking out there on the horizon it's better to protect your investment with great products from oil and as usual the hour just flies every time you're with us dan give out your telephone number for us one more time and email address it is 800-370-2986 email dan watson at the loop page.com. Thank you, Dan.